We bought our current house in which we live uh, six years ago. It's the first time that I had ever purchased a house that old. Our, our house, when we purchased it, was 38 years old. And so I approached the home inspection process with a little more trepidation than what I've approached the home inspection process with other newer homes that we have purchased. In particular, I was really worried about the foundation. Well, our, our realtor, knowing my apprehension, got a home inspector who in his previous life had been a structural engineer. And he put my worries to bed. He said, everything is okay. The house is rock solid. And the house was and continues to be a good place, a solid place to live. Because properly constructed, that's what foundations do. That's true of homes. Uh, that's, that's true of commercial buildings. That's, a, that's especially true of churches. But I'm not, in this sense, talking about brick-and-mortar church buildings. I'm talking about the true flesh and blood that is the church, that church buildings house. People, people are the church. You see, when we look at Scripture over and over again, we see that the church is described as the body of Christ, that it is the visible manifestation of the presence of God on our planet. So if we think about what the church is, it's, it's probably best to think about the church itself as Christ himself. If the church were a building, the church would be Christ, which then leads me to ask, okay, if the church is Christ, what is the foundation of the church? Uh, upon what would the church be built? And we can look to Jesus to actually supply something of an answer to that question. In the closing words of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a passage of Scripture that we uh, read in Matthew 5 through 7, he says these words, last words of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Clearly, Jesus here is saying that the house whose foundations is the teaching of Christ will be sound, and the house whose foundations are not the teaching of Christ will be unsound. Now, it's just an illustration, but it's an illustration that highlights the importance of a life that is founded on the Word of God. And what is true for individual Jesus followers is true by default of the collection of Jesus' followers known as the church. The local church, no less than the individual Jesus' follower, should be founded, should be rooted in the Word of God. That is what Jesus is calling people to do in the New Testament, but we see in one of the most important passages of the Old Testament, maybe the most important passage of the Old Testament, that a man named Moses is calling the people of Israel to that same kind of commitment. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, a passage of Scripture 
known by Bible students, known by Jews today as the Shema. Moses calls the Israelite community to be wholly devoted to God and to His Word. And I want to spend a little time this morning looking at that passage of Scripture. So if you would please find Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the fifth book of the Bible. If my math is right, if it's not, just find it. All right? Matthew, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Look at verse 4. And as you're pulling it up, you may be saying, well, why is it called the Shema? Well, because that is how you pronounce the first word of what Moses says in his language in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, Shema, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, how it's phrased may be a bit odd to our ears, but the meaning would have been clear for the Hebrews as they listen to Moses deliver these words for the first time. They would have processed the word hear as something like we would process the word obey. And the reason that they would have done that is for a reason that should make sense to us today, to hear instructions from God without actually doing what He is instructing is to not have really heard from God in the first place. So they would have heard the word hear, but they would have understood that they were being called to obey. And their obedience was based on two truths that are unpacked immediately. First, their obedience is rooted in the idea that they had made a personal commitment to God that they were being called to act upon and obey on that day. Moses reminds them that the Lord is our God. Forty years earlier, the Hebrews had stood before Mount Sinai and committed to a relationship with God whose parameters were roughly, roughly defined by the the Ten Commandments. And so the God that they were being called upon to obey was, was their God. But from God's perspective, the Hebrews, Israel, had always been His people because He had created them through His setting apart of Abraham, but at Sinai, there was a sense in which God became their God. God had chosen them, but they released themselves and their commitment to God half-hearted, though that commitment wound up being uh, for a good chunk of their history. So the first truth was that they must obey God because of their commitment to, to Him. But the larger foundational truth behind the call to hear, obey God, was the very nature of God Himself. He was, He is, one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God that we've committed to, the Lord is one. Now, we could spend the rest of the morning Unpacking the the idea behind God being one, but the basic idea behind God being one is something like God being the one and only. But that's a really trite, almost meaningless way to say it, so let me put it differently to kind of give the full color to it. To say that the Lord is one is to say that the Lord is complete and unified in every way, that in God there is no hint of contradiction, and there are no gods in existence besides Him. All right, with that in mind, 
Let's look at verse 5. You shall love. These are the words that they were being called to obey. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Now remember, this instruction was intended to be simple, and it was given at first to very simple and uneducated people. And what they would have heard was that to hear, to obey God, was to love God. It's as simple as that. Obedience means love. That's something that's unpacked even in the New Testament, John 15. But also, in in a much deeper way, they were to love God in a sense of obligation. We almost always, always think of love now in terms of the emotion of it. And to be sure... The emotion of it is important. Listen to me. If you really understand what it is that you have been given by God through Christ and salvation, if it does not touch the deepest parts of you, I question whether you have actually experienced Jesus and salvation. But there's more to what is being called for here than that emotion. We're being called to the obligation of love. Think with me about marriage for a moment. When Julie and I got married almost 33 years ago, we understood as 20-somethings the sickeningly sweet emotion of love. We did. Everybody does when they get married. But what 33 years of life together has taught us is the obligation of love. The obligation to put the other before self. When you're a pastor, you do your kids' weddings And so I've done both of my children's weddings, and I told them privately, and then I told them publicly in front of everybody that was gathered, if you are not ready to lay down your life every single day for this other person, whether they believe it or not, whether you think that you deserve them or not, whether you think they deserve your love or not, if you're not ready to put them first every day for the rest of your life, you need to walk off the stage. Because there's an obligation to this that makes it work. So love in marriage is both a feeling, but it's also an obligation. And it's clear that Moses is speaking of the obligation of love for God. In Deuteronomy 6, he says that we are to love God with every element, with every fiber of our being, heart, soul, and might. The Lord's has, had made the, the Hebrews his special people. He had brought them out of slavery. He deserved and was owed no less than their unqualified obedience. Verse 6 says that his love, that, they, or that, the love, that this love that they had for God that saved them was to be upon their heart, which again has very little to do with the emotion of love. The point is that their commitment to God was to be constantly and consciously on their mind. And then verse 7 makes the point that this personal commitment was to be actively instilled in the heart of the next generation. They were to teach this obligation of love to God in light of who He is to their children in the hopes that their children would teach it to their children. And then he says this, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. These words I am calling you to obey in light of who God is. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. 
Now, we miss the point of this instruction if we're to understand it as literal instruction. They are not being told to literally wear copies of God's instructions on their bodies or to write them on their houses. Interestingly, that's what they did because that's easier to do than what they were actually being asked to do. It's easier to write some words on your house and wear a fashion accessory that calls to mind the Torah, the law of God, than it is to actually live those things out. What they are being called to do is literally live these things out. We know this because it would have been impossible practically on a day-to-day basis to, to drag with you the scrolls of the Torah, to write every word of the Torah on your house. What is really intended is that their commitment to love and obey God would be visible and obvious to everyone around them. It wouldn't be a private matter, but it would be on display in their attitudes and actions for all the world to see. And all of this was rooted, founded, in the very words of God. Hear. Obey. Love. Their commitment to God was to be built on the Word of God. This was to be true of every Jew and of all Israel. Today, as Jesus showed us earlier, it is to be true of every Jesus follower, and it is to be true of all the church. So obviously, the primary responsibility that the elders of Blue Valley have is to be excellent stewards of the responsibility we have to build this local church body on the Word of God. That is a responsibility that we take very seriously. And so we have woven God's Word into the fabric of everything we do. So in this last series of messages on our DNA, on our core values, uh, outlining the 12 core values of our church, I want to show you the four that demonstrate the value that we have in placing our church's foundation on the Word of God. Remember, these are going to show up on your screen pretty quickly but they're 24-7 available to you on our website about us, Mission Vision Values. But here's the first. Because the local church should be built on the Word of God, we value expository preaching done in a way that enables our post-Christian culture to hear Christ speaking through His Word. What on earth is expository preaching? Well, There are definitions that are very technical, but basically it's it's a way of preaching that focuses on what one passage of Scripture properly understood has to say to us. That's what it is. So rather than start with something, some idea we have as preachers that we want to share with the church and then throw Scripture at it, we start typically with a passage and then let God say to us, and ultimately the church, what he wants to say to us from it. And even when we are in a series like this one, which is unusual for us and which is essentially topical in nature, we root every message in a single passage of Scripture so that we can understand that the values we're talking about weren't derived from us and our minds, but ultimately from God's Word. And as our value states, we do this way of preaching because it is increasingly, increasingly crucial in a post-Christian culture. Because we have arrived at the days that Paul said were coming when he wrote to his young protege, Timothy, 
the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And we're just almost trained as believers on the conservative spectrum now to read this and saying the day is coming when culture will acquire for themselves teachers that feed their biases and feed the things that they want to hear. But he's not saying that to Timothy. He is saying to Timothy, the day will come in the church when people will not want to hear the Word of God, but will instead want to have their biases stroked, where they have a a, a desire to have their preconceived notions undergirded. And it's easy for us on the conservative side of the spectrum to say, yep, that's happening down the road at the liberal church, but folks, I don't deal with the liberal church. I deal with us. And it's happening here. It's happening here. You may not have known about it, but you need to. When I got back from vacation this summer, I was told that when our minister to children and their families, Kevin Pragel, was preaching from Romans 13, and in my absence on, on July the 10th, Romans 13, 1 through 7, I think, is the exact passage. Two different sets of guests in two of our three services got up and walked out when Kevin read these words from his manuscript, and I'm reading from his manuscript. Within this passage, we're going to see how God instructs us to honor God with both our attitude and our actions towards government. And they got up and they walked out. Now, maybe something pressing happened at the precise same time in the lives of two different sets of people in two different services. But I suspect that they got up and walked out because Kevin was teaching the plain meaning of the text. Paul was telling the persecuted Roman Christians living under Nero, no less, that they were to submit themselves to the governing authority. And some free Americans who apparently didn't like who was in the White House didn't want to hear it, and they got up and they walked out. Itching ears itch regardless of what side of the spectrum you're on. They itch because we're lost. And the days of 2 Timothy 4 are here. People want to have their biases stroked, and the only antidote to that is to the Word of God. So we preach it like we do because it forces us first, but then also all of us as a congregation to hear what we are naturally inclined to not want to listen to. Preaching expository sermons is one way we build the local church in the Word of God, and therefore build our foundations to remain strong as a church. Next, because local, the local church should be built on the Word of God, we value worshiping in a way that is inclusive for all generations. Now, when I, I came to Blue Valley in, in 2007, there was a kind, and I mean kind, but immediate, jockeying for position with me on the issue of worship style. 
When I came here, I was the only full-time ministry staff member, and everyone knew, because I told them this, everyone knew that my first task was to find someone who would lead us in worship, and that search ultimately led us to Pastor John. So everyone was trying to give me help. They were saying to me, well, you need to look for someone who will lead us in very traditional hymn-based worship. And then others were saying, well, you need to look for someone who will lead us in contemporary worship, the, the new styles of the day. And instead, because I kind of tend to do my own thing, I went looking for someone who wasn't wrapped up in labels and who would lead us in a worship that would be inclusive for all generations, who wouldn't be assessing what we would sing on whether something appealed to an older crowd or whether something appealed to a younger crowd. I believed that our church needed someone who would determine how we worshiped based on whether or not what we were singing had its foundations in the Word of God, because there's a lot of gibberish out there, both old and new, that churches sing every week. And so at Blue Valley, we sing some old songs that are rich in doctrine, and we sing some new songs that are rich in doctrine. What we do not sing is something simply because it is old or new, or because it reminds us of the good old days, which never existed, by the way, or how catchy it is. Doing so allows us to have a worship experience where all generations can stand together and sing songs that find their foundations, their roots in the Word of God. That's why we worship the way we worship. It's because we want to have Word-rooted worship. Next, because the local church should be built on the Word of God, we value building small group community through Sunday school. One of the reasons that we as a church basically didn't miss a beat when the stay-at-home order of 2020 hit was because we had long ago chosen to build our small group community at Blue Valley through Sunday school. When we gather on Sunday morning, we don't connect as a church in our large corporate worship experience as, as important as this experience is. We instead move people to connect as a church through our Sunday school classes. And our Sunday school classes aren't built around topical studies. Why, you ask? Why are they not built around topical studies? Because if we said every teacher can do what is right in their own eyes, we would have 55 studies on the end times taking place right now, or 55 studies taking place on how to be the best version of you that you can possibly be, and I've got no interest in that, and the elders have no interest in that. Instead, we build our Sunday school around the systematic study of the Word of God, one that every three years takes us from Genesis to Revelation and shows us each step of the way how Christ is in it all. And so if you're not a part of a Sunday school class, that's what you're missing, and that's what we would encourage you to be a part of to really connect. And finally, because the local church should be built on the Word of God, we value age-graded ministry that complements the spiritual leadership of parents and that disciples the next generation of Jesus followers. What I'm about to share is probably of everything we've got on paper as our values, the thing I'm most passionate about because I've got experience with this that frankly is not great. So you're about to hear my heart on, on age-graded ministry. You can't weigh on a scale how little the elders and I care about filling the social calendar of your children and your students. Don't get me wrong. 
We want the next generation to enjoy their time at church and to connect with their friends who follow Jesus while they are here. But we have not ever in my tenure here, nor will we ever fill the calendar with an endless string of activities, and we have not ever, nor will we ever, have the primary focus of our time with the next generation when they are here at church, how good a time they are having. Our focus is to equip them to walk with Jesus into a world that most of us as parents and grandparents can't possibly imagine. And jumping around and hooping and hollering for an hour each week won't get that done. I was a student minister for 10 years. And best practice at the time was that the most important thing is just to make sure the kids are here at church. And so for 10 years, as I've said to you before, I was a highly entertaining, very ineffective student minister. But now the students who filled my student rooms and got on the buses for my events and went to my camps or in their 40s. And I say this to my shame. Hardly any of them are following Jesus. That's the blessing of social media for me. To look at what a failure that way of doing ministry was. Simply being at church won't work because it's never worked it doesn't work for you and it's not going to work for them so we might not have the most activities or the wildest time of any church in Johnson County but we don't care what we care about is sending students off to college grounded in the word of God and we have a plan to do that believe it or not that is comprehensive that starts with a partnership from Dr. Tracy in preschool, Kevin in our little kids' children's ministry, and Zach in our high school ministry, which works in tandem, works together from preschool to high school graduation to accomplish that goal. Because our hopes are not that we have more kids than anybody else in our building for five years. Our hope is that the kids we have love Jesus when they're 40. One last thing. Everything we do is predicated on the notion that we are simply supplementing the discipleship that is happening at home. And our goal is to help you as parents in that. If you need help knowing how do I disciple my kids at home, well, first of all, it's not a curriculum. I mean, people, when they ask me, did you disciple your kids when they were home? Well, I mean, we didn't sit down and read a book. We, we just, we talked, we ate dinner together, we golfed together, we hung out and watched TV together, and we talked about the things that Deuteronomy 6 says that you should talk about as you go through your normal life. And God has graced me with kids that love Jesus. And now a kid who is a parent, who is raising his kids to love Jesus, my daughter-in-law raising our grandkids to love Jesus. I mean, one of my favorite videos I have on my phone, I'll show you, <laughs> is of my little two-year-old granddaughter, not knowing she was being 
filmed standing in the kitchen with her back to mom saying, I will be with you always. <laughs> That's what's happening. That's what needs to happen. And we, we want to help you do that. We want to we help you do that. But you cannot do nothing. And then drop your kid off at church and get angry at us when we can't cold start them for an hour once a week. We have to work and partner together in order for us to help our kids love Jesus later. The local church should be built on the Word of God. It should not be built on a man in the pulpit or on tradition, or sentimentality, or ideology. Because it's pouring rain, folks. It is pouring rain. And it's not just pouring rain on the other side of the street. It's pouring rain on us. And that which is not built on the Word of God is going to erode. And is going to leave people in a state where they are going to come crashing down. But everything that is built on the word of God will help Jesus followers and churches stand because the foundation is strong. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.